You may be seated. As we continue in our sermon series, The School of the Prophets, we've come today to Elijah and Elisha, and I wonder if you would turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, or the text is on page 10 in your bulletin. You know what just happened before this was the famous battle on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, forty days and forty nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return to your, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my, and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Bless our hearing of this, our Father, we pray. And give us wisdom in a troubled time. In Jesus we pray. Amen. In history, there are two things that have produced a state of war. One, obviously, is when two kingdoms square off against each other. The other is when within a particular kingdom, certain people in that kingdom decide that their rulers are unfit to continue. They regard their rulers now as illegitimate rulers, maybe because those rulers are viewed as now inherently hostile to the people's interests, 
Or maybe the rulers have been infected by some foreign influences that are hostile to the people's interests. And this sets the stage for what we know historically as a revolution, an uprising of, the, of at least some of the people against their rulers to overthrow them. And that's very important to notice about revolution. The origins of revolution are populist. It comes from the grassroots, from the people. The aim of revolution is the overthrow of the ruling powers. And these things have gone on throughout history. And amid those so-called political intrigues, the church of Jesus Christ is to bear witness, prophetic witness. I've been attempting in this series to kind of lay out the idea that on the day of Pentecost, Jesus invested his church with his prophetic authority, his prophetic power to bring God's life-giving word to the world. So he's now with the Father, and he gives the Spirit, his Holy Spirit to the church. He kind of gives us the mantle of prophethood. And there's a danger as the church is bearing witness amid these political intrigues that on one hand, as you know, the church can sell out to the regime. It can sell out to the existing powers. The other danger for prophets is that they can become infected and ultimately kind of commandeered by revolutionary movements. So they can sell out to a regime or they can be sort of taken over by revolutionaries. And that brings us to the very challenging problem of what I will call, as others have, Christian resistance under wicked regimes. Of all the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha find themselves pitted against arguably the very worst regime in Israel's history, the wicked Omride dynasty. Omri was the father of the king you probably know better, King Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the midst of that wicked Omride dynasty in the northern kingdom after the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel have split apart, Elijah and Elisha find themselves ministering under that dynasty. And what I want to do for a few minutes now is in this very, very dark moment in Elijah's ministry, I just want to try with you to discern some features here of prophetic resistance, prophetic resistance movements. I want to give you two principles first, and then four very brief practicalities. But now, first two principles of prophetic resistance. Now, you guys know the background. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. The background, of course, is what happened up on Mount Carmel where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel in front of King Ahab, and he essentially says, the God who sends fire to burn up your sacrifice, he is the true God. And he, t he says to Israel, if Yahweh, the, you know, the God of the covenant, is, is, is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And they have this dramatic sort of ritual where the 400 prophets of Baal, they, they you know, set up their sacrifice, they dance around, they scream, they can't seem to get their God, Baal, to wake up, and so eventually people get tired, they get tired, and Elijah says, enough. And he puts up his altar and his sacrifice, and he soaks it with water. Now, this is three and a half years into a drought. So this is an utter waste. He's going to get himself in serious trouble if this doesn't work. He soaks the altar, calls upon God. God sends fire. It consumes the sacrifice. The people shout, Yahweh is God. And Elijah grabs the moment, and he says, take the prophets of Baal down to the river Kishon, and they're to be executed by the river Kishon. Once that bloody deed is done, he says to King Ahab, sit down and have a meal. I'm going to go pray. So he goes and prays. And while he's praying... We've got a serious parade going on here. While he is praying, he's praying for rain, and he sees over time as he's praying, 
dark clouds, rain clouds, begin to roll into the area. Finally, they're so, they're so full of rain, he goes back to Ahab and he says, you better get in your chariot, O king, and make your way really fast back to Jezreel because I hear the sound of mighty rain. And so Ahab gets in his chariot and the heavens open and rain falls. And my favorite part of the story is Elijah, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he actually girds up his loins and he outruns Ahab in front of his chariot to the gates of Jezreel. What a day, what a victory for Yahweh. This is great stuff until the next morning. Because Ahab goes home and he talks to his serpentine pagan wife, Jezebel, and she wastes no time. Jezebel is a strong lady. And she sends a messenger to Elijah, and he says, do be clear that by this time tomorrow night, it'll be your corpse floating in the river Kishon. Time to go. So Elijah runs. He runs for his life. And that brings us to the first principle of prophetic resistance. It might surprise you. Prophetic resistance is never defensive. It's never defensive. There's a little bit of a problem with the word resistance because we tend to think rightly of resisting an aggressor. I mean, if somebody attacks you, their aggression is something you resist. They're the aggressor, you are the resistant. And it's extremely easy to read this story as it opens with Jezebel and even Ahab in the role of the villain aggressor going after Elijah, and he's kind of in the reactive position, right? This is, this is the Omride dynasty's realm, they are not happy with Elijah, and so they're coming after God's prophet as aggressors. Peter Lightheart has actually helped me to see it's the exact opposite. This is actually not the Omri dynasty's realm. This is Yahweh's realm. And that spiritual battle that just happened up on Mount Carmel, that was not initiated by Ahab and Jezebel. That was initiated by the high king, Yahweh, through his prophet, as an act of aggression against the forces in this land that resist him. He's the aggressor. And that is how a truly prophetic resistance thinks. A truly prophetic resistance always starts from the reality God reigns and God is pursuing his enemies and he is going to put them under his feet. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's how a prophetic resistance thinks. It understands that whatever it looks like, God is, the, God is the initiator. The initiative is always with him. That is basic reality, and everything else we're looking at is relative to that fundamental thing. God is on the move. God is building his kingdom. He's using his word to build his kingdom. And what we are doing is we're just participating in that proactive, even aggressive, we might say, movement of God the king. And what happens when God goes on the move? Well, things get very, very, very restless behind the gates of hell. <laughs> this aggression will not stand, man. To which the church says, your resistance will not stand. Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand against it. That's just, that's the story. You know, think about Jesus' trial. I love this story. Jesus standing bound and bloodied before Pilate, behind whom stands the entire majesty and power of the Roman Empire. I mean, who's in the role of aggressor? In that scene, this bloodied man who's about to be hanged on a cross as a despicable criminal, and here's mighty Pilate representing Rome. Who's the aggressor? I mean, Pilate clearly feels like he's the aggressor, and Jesus is, you know, the more or less helpless victim. 
And Jesus is just completely unmoved. You have no power at all against me unless the God I'm here to represent had given it to you. And Jesus is about to rip the foundations out of the entire kingdom of darkness and bring down every empire and rule and nation and kingdom that will not bow the knee to him. That he is the man on the mission. Pilate has no idea what he's dealing with in that story. He has the, uh, he has the effrontery to ask Jesus, are you a king then? That's how prophetic resistance thinks. It's never defensive. Never, because it understands the story. And that radically, that understanding of the story radically conditions then the goals and the tactics of prophetic resistance. Here's the second principle. Prophetic resistance, number one, is not defensive. Secondly, because it's not defensive, prophetic resistance is not revolutionary. This is very important. Prophetic resistance is not revolutionary. Prophets, unlike a lot of Christians I know right now, to be, to be very honest. Prophets are focused. They are focused. God is at the center of their vision. Prophets, when they're looking at the world, God is front and center stage. And so their political mission, as they come into various political situations with kings and rulers and peoples and so on, their political mission, with God in the center of their vision, their political mission is that God shall be worshipped and obeyed. That is what they are, that's, as they look at various situations with peoples and kings and rulers and nations, that is what they are, that is what they are after. They are focused on that. Prophets have this stubborn conviction that you just can't shake out of their heads, that political problems are always sovereignty problems. All political problems, when you really get down to it, are problems of sovereignty. The root of injustice comes from the problem down in the, in the very bottom of things, who is in charge? And in that sense, all injustices that are, that are happening in the world are spiritual because they come from the fact that societies and rulers and, and nations are trying to build good cities, good nations, good realms and regimes, places of prosperity and, and where, where things are you know, basically um, you know, just and right and, and, and glorious. They're trying to build all that on the sand of human authority rather than the rock of God's authority and his law and what he says is just. And because prophets are so stubbornly focused on God, he is in charge. He shall be worshipped. He shall be obeyed. That is what they seek as they bring the word. You'll notice they speak to rulers and ruled alike. Prophets are no more populist than royalist. God is king. And kings need to hear that, the royalists need to hear that, and peoples need to hear that. The populists need to hear that God is king. And so, as prophets confront rulers, and they do, I mean, you see it all over the Old Testament and the New, as prophets confront rulers, unlike the revolutionaries, think about their aims and their methods. Number one, it, you know, again, this is, I'm just unpacking that we're not revolutionary. Prophetic resistance is not revolutionary because our aim, first of all, is not to overthrow but to renew government. That's what prophets are after. They're not interested in overthrowing. They're interested in renewing government. The controlling aim of a prophetic resistance is we seek that rulers humble themselves before the living God. And this perfect example of this is Who? 
Who does that bring to mind? A man who worked in a brutal regime, high up in the brutal regime, saw the inner workings of this brutal regime, and what is his controlling interest, his controlling aim? I'm thinking, of course, of Daniel. What he's interested in is not overthrowing Babylon, but for the, 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 the king, the head of state, to humble himself before God. And he's right there at Nebuchadnezzar's side as Nebuchadnezzar slowly realizes there is a king in the heavens and I'm not it. You know, if there was going to be a revolutionary moment in the Elijah story, it was back on Mount Carmel. The interesting question to think about in prophetic resistance is why, when they executed 400 prophets of Baal, didn't they just execute Ahab at the same time? They had the moment. You want to be a revolutionary? That's your moment. But this is a prophetic resistance. And prophets understand that God removes kings. The prophet's role is to seek the conversion of the king and the renewal of the kingship. That's what prophets are after. God is able to remove kings. Prophets are interested in the conversion of kings and the renewal of kingship. It's interesting that even later on, you might remember the story of when Ahab goes even further in his wickedness, and there's this man, Naboth, who has a a vineyard and and some property near Ahab, and so Ahab, at the prompting of Jezebel, decides he's just going to have Naboth falsely accused, stoned to death, and just take his land. And this is just brings just wrath from God, the high king, and he sends Elijah to confront Ahab. But it's interesting that even in that moment of such rank injustice, the only sword Elijah brings to confront that king is the word of God's judgment. He says, the dogs are going to lick your wife's blood in the place where they stone Naboth. That's the word of the Lord. It's a, you know ear-tingling word. But you know what's really crazy? That's the word of judgment. When Ahab hears that word and he's kind of rocked for once in his ugly life and he repents God sends Elijah back to him with a word of grace that says I'm going to wait until after you're you're gone after you've died to bring this judgment I promised Elijah brings the word the aim it's not overthrow it's renewal of government and the methods of prophetic resistance unlike the revolutionaries reflect that prophetic methods always reflect Please hear this, beloved. I don't know if any of you will ever be tempted to be a revolutionary or something close. Please hear this. Prophetic methods always reflect God's justice, mercy, goodness, and peace. Prophetic resistance never, ever, ever, ever sinks to the level of a raw, violent contest for power. Friedrich Nietzsche is not where we Christians Get our political theory. We do not sink to the level of a raw, violent contest for power. That is not the Jesus way. It is not the way of prophetic resistance. You do not ever, we do not ever do evil so good may come. You cannot further submission to God's will by violating his will. Are you with me? You cannot further submission to God's will in this world by violating his will. You cannot overcome evil with evil. And what you see very often with revolutionary movements is they end up simply mirroring what they oppose. Matching injustice with injustice. Now, I'm sure all of that you would agree with. So do these principles, these two principles, that prophetic resistance is not defensive and it's not revolutionary, do, they, do those two principles speak in our moment, 2021? I think they do. Here would be a couple suggestions of how they might speak to our moment. They remind us to guard against two things. They remind us to guard against anti-government thinking and rhetoric. Anti-government thinking and rhetoric. I don't think we have very many revolutionaries, if any, in our 
sort of circles that we run in. But I'll be honest, as a pastor, I hear the word tyranny being thrown around a lot by evangelical Christians right now. And I feel like in Nigo Montoya, I don't think that word means what you think it means. That word means something. Can I just say something we all need to remember from time to time? Being ruled badly is not being tyrannized. Let me say that again. Being ruled badly does not equal being tyrannized. Being ruled in ways that we don't like, being ruled in ways that are completely stupid, being being ruled in ways that are excessive, even being ruled in ways that to some degree are unjust does not necessarily mean our rulers are tyrants who basically have forfeited their authority. The word tyrant means something historically. We're going to need that word someday. I don't want us to wear it out. There's a lot of terrible government. It's not tyranny where these rulers have forfeited their authority. And I just want to caution all of us. I hear a lot of Christians, and they're just very anti, it sounds like almost like we're anti-government in the way that we speak. But I just want to, you know, just prompt us from time to time. Americans are annoyed with anything that encroaches on their personal liberties. Americans hate being told what to do, by and large, and they're very annoyed when people encroach on their personal liberties. We need to be careful as Christians that that typically American annoyance doesn't blind us to the blessings of rule, even through very bad rulers. That it doesn't move us out of a posture of resistance. We call upon our leaders to fear the Lord and submit to him into a mindset that begins to sound a lot more like a revolutionary. The second thing I think that these two principles caution us to guard against is a preoccupation with social ills rather than spiritual causes. Being preoccupied with social ills rather than spiritual causes. More than perhaps we even realize, the good news that God reigns, that Jesus in particular is Lord, that has social effects. It's not at all wrong to say, I'm reading my Bible, I'm hearing that Jesus is Lord, and that ought to take some social shape. That means something in society. It means something in government and, you know, in, in, in public life. It does. But if you and I become preoccupied with all the social ills that are going on in our world, I've noticed, and I feel it myself very much, that can begin to divert us from the renewal, dear saints, the renewal of minds and imaginations and habits without which those social ills will not change. You want to get the root, you want to get the tree down, you got to get the root system. You can sit and look at social ills all day long, and the gospel speaks to a lot of that, but you've got to be very careful that we don't get diverted from what is actually our work as prophets in this world, which is to help renew the minds and imaginations and ultimately life habits of people, because if that stuff doesn't change, then there is no reformation of society. One of those, these, I'm going to read you four lines from Oliver O'Donovan that just absolutely rocked me. This is so brilliantly stated. Because, you know, I hear so many Christians and they have so many big ideas about all this stuff in the political realm. And he says, judging when political questions merit prophetic commentary requires a cool head and a theological sense of priorities. Judging when political questions merit prophetic commentary requires a cool head and a theological sense of priorities. Now listen to this. The worship that the principalities and powers seek to exact from mankind is a kind of feverish excitement. 
the worship that these principalities and powers try to exact from mankind, that worship is a kind of feverish excitement. The first business of the church is to refuse them that worship. The first business of the church is to refuse them that feverish excitement about what the principalities and powers are doing. There are many times, he says, when the most pointed political criticism imaginable is a talk about something else. Those are the two principles. We're not defensive. Our God reigns, and he is after his enemies, and we are not revolutionaries because we don't have to be because we know the king in our aims and our methods. Now, four practicalities more quickly. You see them quite just on the surface of the text, I think. Number one, you will notice in verses 3 through 8 that prophets need refreshment. (laughs) They do. You know, in times when there is rampant idolatry, There's widespread moral degeneration. There's little or no audience for the word. I mean, who wants to hear from Yahweh in these days that Elijah's in? Prophets get tired. They get worn. They get discouraged. Elijah, the man of God, is so kind of beaten down by all this, he basically says, God, I'm ready to die because I haven't done anything more than my forefathers. It's not working. Why continue? And what does God do? This always moves me. God doesn't sit him down and wag his divine finger in Elijah's face and say, you know, pull yourself together, man. He doesn't preach at him. He puts him to sleep, feeds him twice, so he can make the very, very long journey south all the way into the uh, the Sinai Peninsula and to Mount Sinai. And I want to encourage you guys, one thing to remember in these troubled days that we're living in, prophets do need refreshment. Use the refreshments God gives. Sometimes the best thing you can do is stop thinking about all the stuff that's going on. Go work to get sleep and eat and take the physical, tangible refreshments God gives. And here's the other thing. You might be the angel in this story. You might be the one who shows up and just comes alongside someone to feed them as a messenger of the Lord, to refresh them, to give them rest. Prophets need refreshment. You've got to remember that, especially when you're in intense times of mission. Second practicality. You'll notice in verse 9 and following, prophets, this is very practical, they speak in God's heavenly counsel. The real action in this story is not back in Jezreel where Jezebel is just on a rampage. The real action in this story is on this lonely rock called Mount Sinai, hundreds of years after God's covenant with Israel through Moses, where Elijah has now returned to this place where the covenant began, and he offers a kind of court brief. I'm a you know, former lawyer, as you know, and I, it's a, sort of like a court scene. God's heavenly counsel is here, and Elijah walks into that heavenly counsel where Moses once stood on that mountain, and he, he presents a court brief on the state of Israel. This is, this is the state of the union. <laughs> this is what's going on. It is not good, O Lord. You, you know, remember your kingdom. He presents his brief. He talks to God. I've been trying to think about the, this imagery, because like many of you, I think, I find it very hard to believe that God wants to hear from me. And at night, especially now when I can't sleep and I'm lying there, I've been trying to, in my imagination, walk into the heavenly council because it's, it's, it's real and present my court briefs and argue my case before the Lord. Prophets speak. God wants us there in his heavenly council. Come into his presence and speak to him. Present the case of what's going on in Israel and cry out for his response. And he does respond, you'll notice. There are two parts of God's response. The first thing he does is just renew Elijah's confidence in the power of the word. Man, I want God to send a wind that can blast mountains apart. I want God to send an earthquake that rocks things to their foundations. I want God to send consuming fire, and God sends them all. And he's not in any of those three things. Then there comes this whisper you can almost not hear. 
Because the thing that we need to remember as God's prophets is that a whisper of God you can barely hear is what we really need to change the world. And the second thing is a very odd set of instructions. So we have the prophets need refreshment and they are to speak in God's heavenly counsel. But the third practicality comes in this set of instructions beginning in verse 15. And I've described it this way. Prophets, they don't just pray, they build in the shadows. In the shadows, on the margins of wicked societies. They don't just pray, they prepare, often very quietly in quite a bit of obscurity, they prepare for the changes that are going to come. Ahab's going to fall. Jezebel's blood will be licked up by dogs. God reigns and he's going to have his kingdom. Now, people talk about the deep, the deep state. I don't know if you believe in the deep state. We need to believe in the deep church. That whatever's going on on the surface, there's a deep church. There's a church that's doing God's things. And there are dark times ahead in Israel. In fact, by verse 18, you can see God says it's going to be whittled down to like 7,000. A number that basically means there's going to be a remnant left. We're chopping this tree down to kind of a stump. And notice what he tells Elijah to do in light of these dark times to come. What kind of preparations does Elijah need to make? Well, one thing God tells him to do is go raise up some lawful agents of regime change. There's no revolution here. But he will be, part of what he will do is he will raise up, he will help to raise up some lawful agents of regime change. Again, he has, there's no interest for prophets in overthrowing the kingship as such. That anointed kingship remains intact. It remains constant, even as the anointing itself might be taken from one and given to another. And there are times when the church can participate in prophetic ways in helping lay the foundations of some you know, real changes in regimes that we're serving under. You could think about many, many situations behind the Iron Curtain where Christians were doing that, for example, in the last century. But the greater work, and the one that receives all the attention here, is not working the, with respect to political events and players. The greater work is that Elijah needs to raise up a successor who will keep the light of God's word burning in Israel after Elijah is gone. And here we actually have a wonderful example from our own history. You guys ever heard of John Calvin? If you haven't heard of John Calvin, I'm tempted to tell you I don't quite know what you're doing in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> He's one of our eminent forefathers. John Calvin is known as a theologian. You know, all the pictures of Calvin show him with this sort of stone face, and he just looks very solemn, and he's always got sort of this bookish look about him. What's not so well known about John Calvin was, in the words of historian Rodney Stark, that Calvin was a master strategist of subversive activities who trained and directed an international network of secret missionary agents who very successfully built a massive reformed underground in fiercely anti-Protestant France in the 1550s and elsewhere. And Calvin got busy with this subversive missionary activity extremely early. Within two years of his coming to, to, to faith in Christ, in 1536, he was already in, he had, been, he had spent a little bit of time in France, and he was already leading secret theological studies in hiding in France. And there's even a cool story about him one day going, he took a bunch of Christians out to a great big cave where they couldn't be found, and they celebrated biblical communion as opposed to the Romish mass out in this cave in hiding. This is the kind of stuff he was doing sort of in this underground movement. And then later when he finally settled in Geneva, he trained uncounted 
missionary agents who crossed the border out of Switzerland over into France, and they, th- th- these stealthy act- activities of Calvin and his agents, th- they resulted in such a stunning, like wildfire spread of Calvin's you know, biblical teachings among the common people that within a short period of time, there were literally millions of disciples in France and Germany and the Netherlands and even Ro- the Roman capital, Italy, and Stark describes it this way. He says, Calvinism, you know, the, the teachings of Calvin, outdid Lutheranism. Don't tell the landlord. <laughs> Calvinism outdid Lutheranism, not by more effective theology, but by more effective action, creating huge underground religious networks of individual converts who brought in their friends, relatives, and neighbors under the guidance of professional missionary secret agents. That's a prophetic resistance. That's building in the shadows. That was how the Protestant Reformation spread. The final thing you notice, the final practicality, we don't just pray and build in the shadows. Prophets, and I'll close with this, prophets have God's own patience. It's interesting, there's no mention here that Elijah actually contacts Hazael to be king of Syria or Jehu to be king of Israel. In fact, it's like chapters and chapters later that Elisha, Elijah's successor, anoints them in 2 Kings 8 and 9. There's a lot of time before even that change comes, and even those changes end up creating more complications. And this is all a reminder that while God will not be mocked, beloved, he will not be rushed. What we perceive as delays, sometimes interminable delays from our perspective, they are but the unfolding of God's plans. There's an immediacy about political contest that's just thrilling. It stirs the blood. It exhausts the soul. But there's an immediacy to it that kind of fires us up. Reformation, I got to say, reformation of minds and imaginations and habits, it's comparatively dull. It may even, for a lot of people that just feel the urgency of the moment, feel kind of out of touch. Because the reality is, beloved, in our day, I believe the church has lost a lot of confidence in the weaponry of the word the power of truth, the deeper magic that Aslan spoke of than the white witch had. And my caution would be, when we feel the most powerless, we don't like feeling powerless, when we lose confidence in the power of the word, when we start to feel powerless, there is a real real vulnerability then to just picking up any weapon to hand. Which brings me to the conclusion. It's Christmas Sunday. And Christmas, in all of its absurdity, is a standing graphic reminder that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A baby. Boy, there's a great way to start a revolution. And thousands of years into the reign of that child, then a man, then a king, at the father's right hand, thousands of years into his reign, Christmas reminds us that however things look, it is absolutely true. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And with that, we should be of very good cheer. Amen. Give us peace and joy, our Father, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.